You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Azubillahi minash shaitani rajeem. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Friday, the 25th of November 2022. The time is 4.02 pm, and you're listening to Dhani Al Zia live from the South London studios of. Voice of Islam uh, with uh, this live edition of the Drive Time Show. Um, as is the norm, we shall be talking about two topics. The first one is about uh, immigration um, and the so-called invasion of our borders, as has recently been put by uh, the Home Secretary herself. Um, and then we shall move on to the second topic um, of the day, which is uh, also very interesting, something that um, I think we all grapple with uh, from time to time, and it's about uncertainty and um, uh, how that affects our day-to-day um, day-to-day lives. So uh, something for there to talk about, discuss, and certainly uh, reflect and think about. So um, uh, that topic we shall start um, uh, right after the 5 o'clock news. The first one, which is about immigration and this whole debate about immigration, uh, which has again um, um, taken center stage, stage in the country. Well, it never really sort of went away, but um, is an important discussion to have. So that we will start um, uh, right away. Right, so uh, the number to call should you like to join uh, this discussion is 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK and we would love to have you on the show. So please do join in and let us know what you think, whether or not you agree with us. Right, so um, last month there was an attack on an immigration centre in Dover. This was motivated by terrorist ideology, um, according to the police. The Home Secretary defined the increasing number of migrants arriving in the UK as an invasion of the country's borders, admitting the country's asylum asylum system was broken. Refugee charities and opposition parties have argued that overcrowding, accidents and disease have made detention centres very unsafe. The attack and the inflammatory remarks from none other than Home Secretary of the United Kingdom follows criticism of her and the government's handling of the migration crisis and has uh, brought this argument center stage once again. Islam promotes the fulfillment of justice and equality so all members of the society can enjoy their rights and live with freedom, peace and security. In chapter 5, verse 9 of the Holy Quran, it is said, O ye who believe, be steadfast in the cause of Allah, bearing witness in equity, and let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just, that is nearer to righteousness, and fear Allah, 
surely Allah is aware of what you do, unquote. Um, and this was from chapter 5, verse 9 of the Holy Quran. Coming back to the Dover attack. So two or three devices described by um, the police and witnesses as petrol bombs were thrown by a man who um, later found who was later found dead at a nearby petrol station on Sunday in Dover. Police have identified the man as Andrew Leake from High Wycombe, said it was likely the attack was sparked by some form of hate-filled grievance. Counterterrorism policing southeast said evidence showed the attack was motivated by a terrorist ideology and met the threshold for a terrorist incident. Tim Jacks, Senior National Coordinator for Counterterrorism Policing, said, After considering the evidence collected so far, whilst there are strong indications that mental health was likely a factor, I am satisfied that the suspect's actions were primarily primarily driven by an extremist ideology. Now, talking about the concerns over the conditions in, conditions in migrant, migrant centers or migration centers. So due to the rising number of migrants crossing the channel, some estimating, um, some estimate suggests um, uh, actually over 70,000 people uh, crossing uh, in the last year alone. The conditions of migrant centers have uh, brought severe criticism for the British government's handling of the migration crisis. Refugees, mostly we see, are left to live in dire conditions of overcrowding, disease, water, um, food shortages, prompting cases of violence and growing frustration or lack of support. What does Islam has to say about this? So Islam protects everybody's rights, including the rights of refugees. Looking after their well-being and supporting them through and after their migration is a basic teaching of the Holy Quran. Allah the Almighty states in chapter 59, verse 9 and 10 of the Holy Quran, These spoils are for the poor refugees who have been driven out from their homes and their possessions while seeking grace from Allah and His pleasure and helping Allah and His Messenger. These it is who are true in their faith. And for those who had established their home in the city and had accepted the faith before them, they love those who come to them for refuge and find not in their breasts any desire for that which is given which is given them, that is the refugees, but give preference to the refugees above themselves, even though poverty be their own lot. Whoso is rid of the covetousness of his own soul, it is these who will be successful." Unquote. This um, excerpt again from uh, chapter 59, verse 9 and 10. So with that sort of preamble, let me go straight to our first guest um, for this afternoon, um, who is Ju Julia Tinsley, uh, working for the Migrants Right, Rights, Migrants Rights Network which is a UK charity that stands in solidarity with migrants in the fight for rights and justice. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hi there, thanks for having me. Excellent, well, lovely to have you, Julia. So, um, firstly, uh, your thoughts on uh, 
the increasing number of uh, people crossing the channel, do you think the government is doing enough to prevent that? Um, so I think in terms of the way that we talk about prevention, I actually think we need to interrogate why these people people are coming here. I think we we speak about people as if people crossing the channel as if it's something to be uh, like there's some magic solution that that we haven't hit on. And I think we actually need to look at this in a much more humanitarian way and look at some of the reasons people people are fleeing. Um, and you know, there's a wealth of reasons why why that is. Um, I think we 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 talk about people crossing the channel as if as if they're in almost a way that criminalises them. And actually, mm. when you look at it, the government's making it increasingly difficult for people to come and seek safety here. And there are very few safe routes. I think you know the people crossing the channel wouldn't wouldn't be in that situation if there was a way for them to come come here safely. And I think the government uh, is, a, is a mess of its own making, really. So the Home Secretary has said that uh, uh, there is an invasion mm. um, uh, of uh, United King of our borders by these, um, uh, uh, by these refugees. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is incredibly dangerous dangerous language to use i think especially she made these comments when uh you know not long before we there were the revelations about the conditions at, at manston and the, the you know, terrorist attack at an uh, immigration detention facility mm. uh, make those comments in light of the hostility that was increasing was was incredibly problematic and irresponsible um i think what i would say about the language of uh, invasion is that that concept, that concept of invasion, is not a new idea. We've seen it in many forms before. I mean, you know, a few years ago, David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, made comments about mm. swarms. I think what it comes back to is this idea of a threat, uh, this and um, inciting this feeling amongst uh, people in in the host country of being overwhelmed, mm. um, and that it is. Um, creating almost this, this feeling of his, um, hysteria. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so going back to the idea of, of a threat, um, I think it's another manifestation in scapegoating immigrants and asylum seekers and sort of placing the blame onto people uh, seeking safety or seeking a new life. Um, I think it's another mechanism in quite a, quite a long history of the way that we speak about immigrants. So uh, this threat and this threat perception is an important issue, and I and I want to circle back to that. That's that's a very important point that you've raised. But firstly, um, yesterday um, the Office of National Statistics came up with um, the net immigration numbers, and mm-hmm. they announced that uh, the net immigration uh, was at an all-time high of five hundred four thousand. Um, out of which, by the way, only. 74,000, 73,000 were asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people, a lot of them are obviously coming on these uh, small boats uh, uh, over the English Channel. Are we creating this hysteria out of um, um, out of nothing, really? You know, the, uh, 73,000 out of over 500,000. 
Um, the rest are, uh, you know, either Ukrainians uh, who we have gladly and warmly welcomed mm-hmm. for the right reasons. Um, uh, uh, that's about 170,000 of them. Then there's another 76,000 who have come from Hong Kong. And again, you know, those um, are people that uh, we have welcomed and we have given them um, mm-hmm. um, a legal authorization to come to our shores. So what's the what's the issue about? What What is the threat? Mm, yeah, it's a really interesting issue. I'm really glad that you raised the point about the way that Ukrainians were received. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the way that the reception that they received and, and the way that they were portrayed in, in the media was incredibly different to the way that mm. people from Syria or Afghanistan were were presented. And, you know, of course it's right that people from Ukraine should be given sanctuary. Sure. We're just asking why why is that <laughs> approach not extended to everyone else? And I think okay. the, the reason for it is probably quite clear when you look at mm. the... Um, the demographics of people who are coming from you know, Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, Somalia, Iraq, you know, I think there have to be questions here about this idea of who, who is welcome in Europe. And I think it's no coincidence that a lot of the people who are not given access to safe routes or not given that welcome are people of colour and are, are pr- from predominantly Muslim countries. Um, I think what's is the way that we talk about migration is that we speak about migrants in general as if they're inherently bad. I think we've, we've created this uh, rhetoric where the word migrant or migration is a bad word, and it's, it's not a bad word. It's a cornerstone of human history. People have always moved. Um, and I think there are just a few questions we need to ask ourselves about why we treat certain groups differently to other groups. Um, and I think as well, we've got this you know, the reaction to the um, statistics that were brought out, and you know it's been quite negative in in many ways. Like it's some crisis that we have to tackle, but we have huge labour shortages in this country, um, and mm. the state of the economy, particularly post Brexit, mm. I think we need to really ask ourselves why we see migration as such a bad thing when actually migration to the UK should be something that that, sh- that is celebrated. Absolutely. Um, only a few years ago, you know, Germany uh, uh, decided to house a million uh, uh, people mm-hmm. from Syria. So, uh, you know, they certainly saw that there was a labor shortage to be addressed and um, and and they, they planned for that. We don't seem to have done that. I'm going to go back to this 504,000 net immigration number, the all-time high net immigration, net migration number of 400 and, uh, 504,000, rather. And I want to break that up for uh, for our listeners uh, just to uh, offer a little more understanding of it. So uh, out of this, 170,000 people came from Ukraine. We've talked about that. Another 76,000 people came from Hong Kong. We've also talked about that. Uh, some 277,000 came to the UK to study. And and they would have obviously gotten visas before they landed here. The uh, the people, the asylum seekers, the so-called, um, pe- uh, the people who were so-called uh, part of this invasion are mm-hmm. these 73,000 people uh, out of the 504,000 number. So, you know, it, 
it's is it even well placed this this fear that this hysteria that uh, is even being created i mean it's not even rooted in numbers mm-hmm. yeah uh, i think it's i think it's a, an interesting one i mean i coming from uh, the migrant rights network where we are think we've been campaigning for a very very long time against this demonization of, of migrants and trying to debunk a lot of those quite harmful and stereotypical attitudes that we have about around migration i mean I would say it's not it's not a well placed fear, fear at all. Um, I think uh, if we also look at the numbers of people coming here, if we you know if we're going to break it down to numbers, I think if we look at the numbers of people coming here in comparison to uh, neighbouring countries, to, to people's origin country or other countries in Europe, it's it's tiny. Um, we our numbers aren't aren't really that high. Um, mm. But I also think we have to ask ourselves why we're so scared of migration. I think it, it always comes back to that point. It comes back to why is this so uh, something that people seem to be so afraid of when actually you know it's not migration is not a new thing to the UK. You know it's <laughs> it's, it's been part of our history. Yeah. For centuries, exactly. And Started with the Vikings, probably, yeah, or even before. <laughs> even before, yeah. I mean, you know, it's. I, I think it's quite. It's just baffling to me and my mm. colleagues at the Migrants' Rights Network that it, it is so demonised. But I think it's going going back to that idea of scapegoating. I mean, if you think, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis. Things. I mean, I mean, we have multiple crises here in the UK at the moment. But I think immigrants often often are the easiest scapegoat because they are voiceless. They don't have that that power to kind of speak up, and I think they are a very easy scapegoat. I think that's one of the one of the many reasons I can think of as as, what, as to why these headlines kind of hit so hard and and seem to cause so much panic. Right. In preparation of this show, I was reading a book uh, by uh, Joseph Kerens, who is a professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, and he has written a book called uh, "The Ethics of Immigration." in which he contends that um, uh, only in a world of open borders will we live up, uh, will we be able to live up to our most basic principles and the principles of um, our, our democratic values of freedom and equality. Those are the, the, the fundamental values we hold dearest to us. Mm-hmm. And um, and we, can, we cannot we cannot have one rule for ourselves and, and another rule for uh, for somebody else. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this idea of one rule for one group of people and one rule for someone else, I think that's an interesting idea when applied to borders because it seems mm-hmm. like for some people, you know, borders apply and for others they don't. And I think at, for MRM we have a long-running campaign called the Words Matter Campaign and one of the things that we're trying to tackle is this idea of the expat. You know, for some groups of people, they are uh, characterized under an expat. Um, you know, it's a very different kind of set of stereotypes and um, norms that come with that, whereas people coming from other countries uh, or other areas or who have certain identities fall into this invasion category and mm-hmm. I think that one rule for us, one rule for them idea is incredibly prevalent in migration um, because expat often falls into white, western, rich people. Um, yeah, I think we've we've clearly demonstrated that that we've clearly debunked that invasion idea 
because it's it's just not rooted in the numbers. The numbers published by the government itself, you know, seventy three thousand out of five hundred uh, and four thousand uh, people are coming are, are the so called invaders. So you know, it just doesn't um, hold up. Uh, the other argument that I, uh, the, um, uh, the other point that I want to discuss with you is about the economic impact uh, mm-hmm. of of immigrants. Um, what are your thoughts on 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 the um, uh, on the service to the country or the net um, economic impact of um, migrants to a particular country? Have you sort of had have any experience or have you um, have you seen any study to that effect? Well, I mean, I think the you know, even just doing like a, a quick research into the into the, the the subject. I mean, I think immigration and migration has a net positive impact on the economy of a host country. Mm. Um, you know, again, going back to labour shortages, we can see that, that there are huge labour yeah. shortages, and there is a link there between how we treat migrants, but I think also post Brexit. Um, but I think you know, there's a the role that migrants play in many institutions or services in the UK that we hold uh, near and dear, like the NHS, and also our, our tech industry, entrepreneurs, um, you know, agriculture, financial sector. So many, so many sectors. Migrant workers have a really, really key role in Britain. Um, but one thing that we do talk about at MRN a lot and I keep going back to language because it is such a key part of the work that we do as a UK-based charity, um, is that we know the facts do show that migrants have a positive economic effect um, in the UK. But some, you know, sometimes that kind of ends up being the default argument for people in favour of migration. And of course it's well-founded, but often migrants or asylum seekers or refugees kind of end up being reduced to this idea of contribute, you know, how much does someone contribute? And we argue that actually that shouldn't be the default argument. You know, if someone, because it kind of, it, it plays into this idea of the deserving and undeserving migrants. Mm. Um, and we can see the positive impact that migrants have had from, from culture, literature, cuisine, music, art, mm. But it shouldn't be conditional on what they can give us in the host country, um, because it it kind of insinuates that if unless they're considered desirable uh, or able to contribute in a way that we can fit, then they're undeserving of rights. You know, what if someone isn't able to contribute in in ways that the UK wants them to? Do we deny people? We can't contribute economically, like the sick or elderly. Do we deny them? refuge or do we deny them any life here um i think while obviously this is a very solid case for the economics and positive economic relationships with migration i I just want to remind people that humanity should should play a key role in how we speak about migration that's a very interesting point actually you raised and i was talking to a human rights lawyer um uh, a month or so ago and uh, she mentioned that there has actually been a, a net immigration, um, emigration, I should say, from mm. the UK of uh, specialist doctors, mm-hmm. uh, highly specialized uh, uh, in their professions, because they were unable to get their old parents over to the UK, because yeah. the uh, the laws are so restrictive there, it's so so difficult. 
to get mm-hmm. visas for them if um, if they're old and if they um, um, uh, it, 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 you know if they become like, even though the the person who's sponsoring them the doctor in this case is mm-hmm. saying that listen I will sponsor them and I will take care of them and I will bear all the you know the financial burden for them and 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 these are the are people which we need in the society because they are highly specialized in and and a lot of those people have left the country have had to leave the country because they couldn't obviously you know if it came uh, between deciding between their parents and um uh, and living in this country they decided to uh, to go and uh, you know live with their parents mm-hmm. so it has actually uh, been a, a, a disservice uh, the current immigration rules um uh, when it comes to uh, you know uh, old age people of uh, of a certain age uh, and getting them to the UK as well, the other question that I wanted to explore with you, Julia, is um, which is also um, constantly talked about, is that of integration, um, and that I think is um, is is mostly um, a question which is posed to the to the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in the UK, integration. So, um, I- integration to me means um, helping the local economy, cleaning up mm-hmm. the streets, helping the uh, paying paying taxes, um, cleaning up streets um, or after the New Year's uh, Day, uh, helping the poor, the needy, um, mm-hmm. supporting uh, people who have been affected by floods um, in Cumbria, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Uh, to me, integration doesn't mean going to a pub and have a drink. Yeah. Uh, but it does mean all the other things. It does mean holding the uh, the the very fundamental democratic values of freedom, equality, loyalty very close to my heart. Mm-hmm. When this argument of uh, how fair then do you think is this argument which is made about lack of integration in um, in the society. Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with you when you say that it's often aimed at the, at the Muslim community. Um, I think that's a very fair uh, um, point because, you know, it's often used to demonize certain groups and it's often used as sort of like an anti-migration um, and often quite, quite racist and xenophobic uh, point. And I think it's kind of used in conjunction with this idea of British values or British culture and that British values and culture are this static thing um, and that anyone who is coming here or um, you know, from, from particular communities kind of have to adhere to that ideal or that myth. Um, and I think we've seen this particularly in relation to um, you know, in the, the narrative around Brexit and then also around the PREVENT programme as well, I think it is used as a way to alienate certain groups and kind of stir up uh, fear and suspicion of certain groups. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm white British and I could not tell you what British culture is. To me, it's, <laughs> it should, it's uh, an element of uh, lots of, I think it means different things to different people. And I think we need to be really wary of this narrative of assimilation and integration because I think it's used to exclude certain people. And I think in reality, we should celebrate our differences. And that point you raised about community as well and helping each other and 
um, celebrating each other's religions or mm. cultures, uh, you know, I think that's what's important, particularly <laughs> given Britain's uh, colonial legacy. I think it, <laughs> it is. <laughs> I think we should. Uh, yeah, I think I think I would totally agree with you. I think we we need to be really wary of using terms like integration and assimilation. So finally, Julia, where do you think we where do we go from here? So, you know, this is the top official in the uh, in the Home Office um, saying that, you know, these people are invading. That's obviously not backed by numbers. Um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 clearly, there is an ec- economic benefit of uh, of having migrants come with. There are labor shortages in this country um, that we're still grappling with. Um, but given the rhetoric, where do you think we're headed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can't pretend that myself and my colleagues at um, uh, uh, Migrants' Rights Network and, and the people that we work in partnership with, I can't pretend that we're not incredibly worried with the way it's going. I mean, mm. you, the rhetoric of, of Nigel Farage back in 2015, it seems to sort of even the mainstream now, even opposition parties are sort of falling into a lot of the quite harmful, damaging stereotypes. Um, I think what I, I think what the one thing I, I would say is that we, the way that politicians and media talk about migration and, and asylum is that there's, that there's this uh, magic solution that we haven't quite hit upon. And once we find that magic solution, all of all immigration and asylum seekers will just go away, particularly in relation to small boats. And that's just ridiculous. Um, I think we need to... I mean, in terms of, of rhetoric, I think we need to start giving people who have lived experience, who are from migrant or migratory communities, I think we need to put them in positions of power and give them the platforms to challenge this this discourse. And um, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's something that's, that's really important. And I think we, we can't be complacent in uh, the role that these words play um and i think also we have to kind of face up to the fact that people crossing the channel or people trying to get to the uk or, or other countries to seek safety or a new life that isn't going to go away particularly in relation to climate change we are already seeing people move because of the impact that climate change is having on areas in the global south and that is going to lead to more and more people having to leave their homes so i think we need to uh, put in place some, some infrastructure and safety and a system that's based in, in humanity and treat people as individuals and not use refugees as a, a political political football. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, well, I couldn't have put it better. better. Thank you very much, uh, Julia Tinsley. It was uh, such a pleasure to speak to you. All the very best with the, with the amazing work that you're doing. Um, Thank you. Uh, please do let us know if there's anything that we uh, at the Voice of Islam Station or any for listeners can do anything uh, to support you. How, how do you raise uh, your funds? Is, is there anything that uh, our listeners in any way can help? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, the Migrants Rights Network, we're a UK charity. Uh, we uh, have lots of ways that, you, that people can give um, over on our website. Um, we're also doing a crowdfunder at the moment for an event on uh, to mark International Migrants Day, and that's going to be very much centred around debunking some of the really 
mm. damaging uh, terms and words used around around migration. So we have all details on our, on our website um, and uh, also on our social media as well. Julia Tinsley Kent, have a lovely weekend and um, uh, a lovely um, a Christmas as well. Um, hope to speak to you very soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. So Bye. that was um, Julia Dinsley Kent, who is um, uh, who works in the Migrant Rights Network, which is a UK-based charity that stands in solidarity with migrants uh, in their fights for rights and justice. Let me go straight to our next guest, who is Annie Vishwanathan, who is a director of Bail of Immigration Detainees and a human rights lawyer based in the UK. Um, Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you. Right. Uh, Annie, firstly, your your thoughts on, you, you may have heard some part of uh, part of the discussion that I was having with, the, with Julia earlier. Yeah. Firstly, um, your thoughts on um, uh, on the comments made by um, uh, Home Office, um, uh, 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 Miss Browerman, actually, around invasion of our borders. Oh well, well, I am I'm absolutely appalled that somebody would talk in this kind of language. It harks back to the 1930s when the Daily Mail was publishing headlines of a similar ilk about um, Jewish people fleeing persecution. Mm. I think it's deeply concerning. So um, I, I agree with Julia that, that the rhetoric around this is very, very problematic and needs to be challenged. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, on this whole debate around integration? Uh, do you think it's a valid question? I think I think it's um, a red herring, really. Hmm. Most people who migrate do integrate and, um, you know, they don't have to, nobody... Societies move and societies evolve and societies change. And migration is a feature of all human societies throughout history. And um, I think that everyone I know who, migrant or not, um, you know, integration is a part of what happens when people join the workforce and so on. And I don't think it should be something that's forced or imposed by policymakers in Parliament, especially when it's to appease certain groups of people who, quite frankly, it doesn't matter how much you integrate, they're never going to be appeased. Hmm. I mean, doesn't it also depend on how you define integration? As I was saying earlier, integration to me... It, absolutely. Yes. I mean, to me, integration is about helping the local community, paying yes. my taxes, paying all the yes. bills on time, helping the needy, the poor, cleaning up the streets, uh, helping those uh, who've been flooded in Cumbria and, and, and whatnot, uh, and, and probably not going to the local pub. Is, <laughs> is that not integration enough? I totally, totally agree. Right. OK. Now, any... Um I want to ask you about uh, the comic book, How to Get Out of Detention, a comic yeah. for immigrant detainees. For the benefit of our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so as an organization, we're a legal charity, and um, our focus is on supporting people who are detained under immigration powers 
um, to secure bail, to basically get out of immigration. And, you know, one of the big problems that we have as an organisation is we, we have a very small staff team and we have a lot of demand. There are a lot of people detained. Mm. Um, so one of the things, one of our um, angles is to try and provide our clients with self-help material so that they can understand the system and do as much as they can to help themselves get out of detention. Our booklet... Um, at the moment is you know law is quite difficult to explain and so we wanted to make it as simple as possible so that it was as accessible as possible to as many people as as we could get hold of bearing in mind that many of our um, clients uh, English is not their first language hmm. so we felt that something a comic I mean, it's not quite the right word but an illustrated guide Sure. to getting out of detention would be a really helpful way to um, support those people and and how do you advertise yourself to migrants who need legal advice when you say that um, English is not their first language? Yeah. How can they contact you? Or you know, I mean, do you have interpreters or how does that work? Yes, so so we do. So we have a we have an advice line that's open from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. every single day, but Friday, and clients can call in on that number. And if they need an interpreter, we arrange for an interpreter. Okay. So, um now I want to ask you more about the these detainees. How yeah. are these immigration detainees treated? What what happens when they come to the UK shores? What's the procedure? Well, at the moment, the procedure was, um, I'm sure you've heard about this, the procedure is that the government by law can hold people for 24 hours mm -hmm. in what we call short-term holding facilities in order to screen them and then disperse them. Um, and a government official will then make a decision about whether they should um, be given bail or whether they should um, be detained or the detention should be ongoing um, at that Recently, what was happening was that migrants were coming and they were being detained in Manston um, beyond the 24 hours. Uh, Manston has now closed. We, yeah. we, 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 and as well as another organization called Detention Action, um, took out uh, or threatened legal action against the government and challenged the Home Office over access to justice at Manston. And... Um, at some point, a government official has made a decision that really people had to be dispersed and they're now being housed in hotels. So these people are then put onto immigration bail or they're detained and moved into immigration removal centres, um, in which case they're entitled to apply for bail um, whilst their claims are being processed. Um, and that's another big issue at the moment because um, since we've come out, I, th I think figures have just come out and the backlog has risen from 64,895 from the 31st of December 2020 to 143,377 oh. um, today. So all of these people are in hotels or various different accommodations that de or detained when they could be bearing in mind that most of them will have a successful asylum claim they mm. could be out in the community integrating mm. in terms of getting jobs paying their taxes and so on and and what what are the factors what does it depend on if they are detained for more than 24 hours what, what is it that that you know the courts look at right 
well, the generally detention happens without a court actually, um, without any judicial oversight. Sure. So it's a Home Office official, a government official who makes a decision. And they make their decisions based upon various factors. They can decide that there needs to be further investigation into somebody's identity. They can decide that they come from a country where the claim can be decided and processed very quickly. Um, so that they want to sort of turn it around very quickly. They can decide that they're not convinced the person is who they say they are, they're not from the country they say they are, and so on. Hmm. So there are various reasons that people are detained, um, generally around those factors. Okay. Now, recently we've seen on the news that a detention center in Armourwith where people were detained for three days and uh, they said there was no running water, there was no hot food, there was no toilet access. How was this allowed to happen? And is is that a one-off uh, incident, do you think? That's such a good question. Um, it seems that the government story is that, that um, the, the electric went down and then the backup went down. Um, and in which case, obviously, you know, the, the obvious thing to do would be to try and get redispersed people into mm. other areas or put them out on bail. But somebody made a decision that they would just lock them in their cells um, whilst they tried to sort it out. And we had a lot of our clients phoning up saying that they had no heat, light, running water, toilet facilities or hot food for three whole days. And um, they were simply... Then, at the end of three days, moved into, told that they were going to be moved to another detention centre. Um, they were put on coaches and they were driven around various places in London um, and nobody could, they, and they couldn't find alternative accommodation. Um, and we understand that, that one group of people were on a bus, for example, for something like four or five hours. They moved around different places before Yarlswood took them. So, no, um, so, no, so not really, really not really planned, isn't it? Uh, it chaos, absolute chaos. Yeah. But you know, with so much of the asylum system and the detention system, that's that's what happens. It's it's kind of disorganised and it's not really fit for purpose. Hmm. One last question that I have in in all of this discussion that we're having, also with Julia and and you know the numbers yeah. that we see, why why do people have this? perception then that it's that that there is an invasion that there is so much happening every day we see this and uh, if if you keep watching the news if you talk to people who 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 have this opinion it seems like the uk is going to be overrun in the next 24 hours <laughs> that's exactly how it's presented and of course the, the truth is entirely different figures are no higher than they were mm. for many years and in fact have been much much higher in the past they're thinking about 2002 2003 um, they were significantly higher um, I think I think this is talked up by the press I think this is talked up by our politicians and um, I think it, it's that creation of an idea that we're invaded is very much part of the press and politicians' um, need to create a situation where it looks like we're under threat and that mm. they will then sort it out for us. There's a very different way of looking at all of this, of course. I mean, you know, we could just turn around and, and be grateful for the people who are coming here mm. and 
um, welcome the kind of diversity that that um, different communities bring. Hmm. All right, uh, Manny, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Uh, very, very interesting to talk to you. And again, as we said to Julia as well, thank you so much for, for all the work that you're doing. Annie was uh, Vishwanathan, Director of Bail of Immigration Detainees and a Human Rights Lawyer right. based here in the UK. Thank you so much for your time, Annie. Thank you. Take thank care. you. Take care. Bye-bye. 0208687878 is the number for you to call. Another another point that I want to throw in the, in the mix here around invasion is that a lot of these refugees, a lot of these people, uh, these poor people are coming from uh, countries like Afghanistan and Syria. And uh, if anything, we have invaded, as in the West, hmm. has invaded those countries. Yeah, yeah. And they are migrating uh, to to uh, to to safer uh, to yeah. greener pastures or, or safer countries I, I, because we have invaded their countries. That, that's the point. I, I remember listening. I don't know who it was who who raised this exact point that if we had not gone to these countries, if the West or certain powers would not have invaded or gone to these countries mm. for for whatever, whatever reason uh, it may be, we would not have this issue. Yeah. Syria would not. Look, again, you ask yourself the question, if you are settled here in the UK, mm. if you're born and bred here in the UK, you like and you love the place that you're born and bred, why would you leave? I mean, leaving your country is a very, leaving your your place uh, where you're born and where you, your friends and family yeah. are is a very difficult decision. Look, it's a fundamentally we, when, difficult when, decision When you're make. offered a job in a different city, you think about it. Yeah, you think exactly. about 10, 15, 20 times. You talk to your friends, you talk mm-hmm. to your family, you talk to your wife, and you you make an informed decision. Yeah. We're talking about leaving a country. Yeah. We're talking about leaving a con- continent. We're talking about not just getting on a plane and, you know, there you go. Walking for days. Walking with your family, but taking mm-hmm. everything that you have, little children. It's not an easy journey. We've seen the documentaries. Mm-hmm. I've spoken to people who... Who, who who did that journey with people from Afghanistan or from Syria. Mm. It's not an easy journey. Mm. So why would you not consider the reasons why they're leaving that? And I think the point that you made before about if you look at the numbers, where these people are coming from. So that kind of, people are calling it hypocrisy. People are calling it, you know, double standards, whatever it might be. I was talking to someone in, in, in Germany. They said that They've also had a lot of Ukrainian refugees, mm. and the 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 privileges and the rights that they have been given. Again, I'm no one to judge. But I'm, mm. I'm just stating what I've heard. Yeah. They were beyond anything that people would have gotten who were there on a on a on a proper way. They applied for asylum or for refugee status and they've been there for 10 years. Mm. They didn't get those rights. Mm. So what what message is that giving to the general Jumping public? the queue, essentially. Yeah. Jumping, jumping the queue. Mm. So there are people there for 10 years. Mm. Same scenario. So they mm. come from a torn, war-torn, war-torn country. country. Exactly. They, Which has been invaded by somebody. Exactly. In this case, Russia. In, in this <laughs> case. <laughs> and, and they have lost everything. Mm. I mean... I'm not downplaying the the war in in the Ukraine, but here are people coming with flashy cars. Yeah. I mean, they have Ukrainian number plates. You're talking about Mercedes and and German cars and mm. flashy cars, mm. good cars, 
And on the other side, you have people walking mm. with nothing on their feet but shoes that are almost torn mm. apart. Mm. So what what are you trying to say? What is the world coming to? Mm. That's and, and, and yet you call this an invasion. Yeah. Yet you call, you know, these poor people who are, who are escaping a war-torn country yeah. invaders. And, and His Holiness, as in Mizam Suram, the current caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, he has put it so beautifully that we, you are tackling a problem when it's already too late. Mm. You're talking about what to do with these refugees when they come to these countries. Mm. And you're not looking at what can we do so that they don't come here in the first place, meaning that they're not forced to come here in the first place. Why are we not addressing the root cause, the root problem? Where are they starting from? Why are they leaving their places? And that's the same thing that he said when it came to uh, Daesh, for example. Mm. Where are the? Why are they so strong? Why are they getting the funding? Where are they wait, getting wait, the exactly? Yeah. You're not going to that cause. Uh, You're just how are they selling their oil? Exactly. <laughs> so, and we're talking about oh, how to how to deal. I mean, with it's them. not something you can uh, put in a bucket and go and sell in the yeah, local uh, oil, oil. <laughs> local farmers market, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, load it up on a ship and then just you know, exactly. <laughs> sail yeah. it up. So uh, th- this this is where some of the problems lie, and again, this differentiation between I think Julia mentioned that based on the color of their skin mm-hmm. is based on the, co- the 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 fact that they are from Muslim majority countries. Yeah. Is their faith. And isn't that the same thing that we're seeing today in what's happening mm. in the world in Qatar right now? Mm. And people are calling it out. Mm. People are calling it out based on the fact that it's is it is it because it's in the first mm. uh, the first Middle Eastern country, which mm. happens to be a Muslim country, which happens to be mm. abiding by laws of Islam or you know sticking to their faith, sticking to their culture, asking and and requesting the world. The global community, if you come here, come here, but respect our culture. Mm. And then you have these warriors or <laughs> commentators and pundits, whatnot, saying no, this shouldn't, this it should be the way that we want it to be. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that immediately comes to uh, to my mind is um, uh, is the comment actually that one of um, uh, a, a journalist made a, a famous journalist I wouldn't name um, uh, when the Russian invasion started in Ukraine and mm-hmm. he said well you know these are these are very much people like us like the rest of Europe and you know they look like us and they watch Netflix yeah. so I guess um, you know the problem with the, the other guys is that probably they don't watch uh, Netflix um, <laughs> while they're walking all the way from Syria to here yeah that's what it is well, anyways, that's that's where we are at the moment. What what can be done? I think that's, as I said, the the last thing that I, that I mentioned just right now. When it comes to the World Cup, I think the world has seen what what I think uh, was it Nina was saying um, about uh, Annie. Sorry, Annie was saying about the media portrayal of things. Hmm. When you you see, we always talk about the negative sides of social media, but I think in this cer- specific instance, we have also seen the power, the, sp- the positive power of social media. Mm. When you have people reporting from on the ground, not affiliated to big networks, mm. not affiliated to a specific uh, group, political group or political orientation, um, and talking about 
all of the wrong misinformation, the misinformation that you see on mainstream media. Yeah. You have English fans talking about on the ground saying that it's 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 completely the opposite. It's hospitable, they are friendly, they're nice, it's not that, it's not this. And and it's completely bogus news what we what you hear on, on, on these media platforms, the the big ones. You see what really gives me hope and what gives me positivity is to talk to people like Julia and Annie. Yeah. You know, yeah. just the fact that people like them exist here who are supporting who who spend their days and nights uh working for these uh for these poor people who are uh, campaigning for their rights uh so as long as uh, you know people like them exist i guess uh, there's always hope the, the, and yeah you're absolutely right and i think that the, people like like them they exist in every society but unfortunately it's the voices and the work that they do which is not highlighted enough mm. Right. I mean, and this is one reason why here at The Voice of Sound, we try to give people as many opportunities as we can to have a balanced view about things. Yeah. Yes, the numbers are on one side, but you also have people on the ground seeing the things that are happening. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about this. What mm-hmm. Annie said that they, they loading them on the buses and driving around for four or five hours. Exactly. I don't think people in general know about this yeah. but she's or, or not in a, having any food for three days yeah. <laughs> imagine that yeah. this is here in the UK mm. we're not talking about some far away country this is here how difficult is it to, to provide someone with a hot meal mm. sad sad alright now we would love to hear from you what your thoughts are on this uh, <coughs> issue if you have anything to say then by all means do give us a call on 0208-687-7878 in the light of the teachings of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him I think we're coming to the end of this part of the program or this part of the show um, this 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 hypocrisy or this treat different treatment of people from different backgrounds when he um spoke about the universal human rights that everybody has he spoke about at the farewell sermon about not treating each other differently based on the color of their skin based on the origin that they had based on their religion based on if they're male or female all of these things were clarified by the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in his farewell sermon. When he said that if you are a white, that doesn't make you superior to a non-white. If you are an Arab, that doesn't make you superior to a non-Arab. What does make you superior in the sight of God Almighty, not in the sight of man, in the sight of God Almighty, is how much righteousness you have, is how much taqwa, how much fear of God Almighty do you have. How do you fulfill your obligations and he spoke about the different groups of people that you have in society when he spoke to men he spoke about their responsibility and their their the the rights that they owe to their fellow human beings be it their wives be it their subordinates be it their uh, servants whoever that may be and throughout his life this is exactly what he practiced and that's the reason why look i uh, for me it's the Hajj, I think, is one of the most beautiful um, statements about about the universality and the and, and the inclusiveness uh, mm. inclusiveness of of the religion of Islam, where you have more than a million people from every corner of the world, countries that you might not even have heard of, mm. coming together and 
for one purpose, and that purpose is to be in unison, walk and 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 circle the Kaaba, the the that black cube, and worship the one same God in the same way that mm-hmm. everybody else does. Mm-hmm. And that's the picture that he wanted to show the world. That's the teaching that we want to give to the world. And then the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, in the last um, hundred years or so after his demise in 1908. That's exactly what we at the Ahmadiyya Muslim community are aspiring to do. Stand up for what's right. Stand up for what's what's morally um, right and what is just. And treat others, wish for others, the way that you want to be treated. Nobody wants to have their loved ones in a cell for three days without shelter with, with without food without any kind of protection from from the cold and look these are people who don't know the cold who come probably from countries that don't have this kind of climate so all of these things combined should kind of awaken that human factor in us something that we all aspire something that we are all crying out about that it needs to be human rights it needs to be this and we need to uphold these values but when it comes to the situation here at home how much of that do we actually do here that's just a question that we want to leave you with and if there's something that we could have could have done to make the situation better then sure we have the 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 right ways to do that we have the rights and the freedoms that people in other countries don't have which is through representation which is through our votes and our voices in the different spheres of political um uh, the, the, the political sphere now we are coming to the five o'clock news and then after that we are going to move on to the second part of our show and which is about uncertainty and what that exactly is well you're gonna have to stay tuned uh we're gonna take a short break here for the five o'clock news and then we'll be back after that don't go anywhere you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you. Thank you very much for joining us back here on the Voice of Islam today with myself, Raza, and Brother Daniel. We are going to move on to the second topic of today's program, which is about uncertainty unfortunately it is part of life but we as human beings what we long for is certainty the uncertainties in life they naturally lead us uh, to become worried it rises our anxiety levels and also may lead down to panic attacks or depression or even worse to people taking their own lives especially now the situation that we're in at the moment not just here in the UK but around the globe with inflation with inflation with rising job insecurities and a post pandemic world with a possible god forbid world war 3 looming over over our heads the antidote to this unhappiness and to this uncertainty as islam presents it 
is to believe in an omnipotent God and a God that is merciful and a God and a and in a being that he uh, that never will that will never let you down and that is according to Muslims the only certainty that we need there's a saying of Imam Ghazali in which he said that what is destined will reach you even if be beneath two mountains what is not destined will not reach you even if it be between your two lips so we would like to invite you join us as we talk about how our faith can help us overcome our fears um, how we can find solace in the belief that God is taking care of us uh, especially in the turmoil that we are going through at the moment yeah so <clears throat> I think that uh, begs uh, the question uh, about belief in the unseen so when we're talking mm. about God uh, we can't see God and um, uh, it, it reminds me another uh, interesting um, uh, an anecdote. So we were at um, at a function, and uh, somebody raised raised this point that you know I I can see everything. Uh, why can I not see God? Um, and uh, this guy replied that well, uh, you know, do you have a mobile? He said, Yeah, I have a mobile. He said, Can you see uh, the radio waves that mm. are coming uh, mm. into your mobile? They're feeding the mobile and 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 making it work and uh, transmitting all the information from if, one. If we could see Wi-Fi signals, bro. Well, <laughs> you you wouldn't be able to see anything in the world anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know you can't. Uh, our, our faculties are very limited. Yeah. Both for hearing, off hearing, yeah. and uh, well, all the five senses, yeah. including hearing and seeing. So, yeah. So, belief in the unseen is the first pillar um, uh, of Islam. It is mentioned in the Quran in chapter two, verse three and four. It is a guidance for the righteous. That is the Quran who believe in the unseen. So, you know that belief in the unseen, uh, the God that we cannot see, but the God that uh, we can certainly feel. And and He says that mm. uh, He's actually close to us, um, closer to us than our Jagger Wayne. I believe in the unseen uh, was explained by the head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmad, may Allah be his helper. He said in one of his Friday sermons in 2007, um, to believe in the unseen means to have absolute firm faith in the existence of Allah. It is this absolute faith that, that leads a believer towards uncovering the, tru the truths about God, about Allah. And we know God Almighty through His different attributes, through His different qualities that we find in the Holy Quran. For example, He is the bestower of security. He's Al-Mu'min. He's also the best of planners, as we find in chapter 8, verse 31. He's also the one that gives our hearts comfort when we think of him, when we remember him. And that's a very beautiful verse, which is also found in many of the mosques of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and mm. other mosques around the world, that it is in the remembrance of God and it's in the remembrance of Allah that hearts find comfort and hearts find peace. And believing in God gives us the reassurance that He is the one in control of our life. And if we find to Him, then um, the world will, will, will look and life will look a lot more organized. It will look a lot more certain than it is without Him. And we would never worry about becoming pure if we sat on a mountain of gold. So why do we worry if we have our Creator on our side. Before we go to our first guest for today, let me just give you one narration of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. A Bedouin man who was leaving his camel without tying it 
the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, asked him that, why don't you tie down your camel? And the Bedouin answered that, I put my trust in Allah. The Prophet then replied, tie your camel first and then put your trust in God or in Allah. What that means, I think it's it's clear for everyone that we're not <laughs> saying that if you have any kind of problem, if you have any kind of uh, issue in your life, just you know, don't worry about it. Just sit mm-hmm. back, relax and enjoy the show. No, it's our responsibility as in this narration when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that tie your camel first and then put your trust in Allah. Meaning after we have um, exhausted all of our resources uh, after we have exhausted all of our means at our disposal and have tried our best to come up with a solution to come out of that predicament then still realizing that it is not getting any better it is not helping then you should fully and fully rely on God Almighty you should do that from the very get go but it's also our responsibility our job to do something to make sure that we solve the problem that we are facing. With that, we are going to go to our first guest for this part of the program. But just let me uh, request everyone out there listening as well. If you would like to get in contact with us, then by all means do so on 0208687-7878. Or you can send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Or you can send us also a comment on Instagram. Now on Instagram, we're asking you the question on our Instagram story. How do you know that God exists and there's a few um, questions that the answers that we have received we're going to go through uh, those in just a little bit okay with us uh, for this part of the program our first guest is a holistic health and life coach for Amadi entrepreneurs and executive uh, my good friend Ghulam Ahmed is with us on the line Ghulam assalamualaikum and welcome to the draft time show Thank you for having me. Jazakallah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a while. How are you doing, first of all? All good? Alhamdulillah, I am doing well. I had a newborn son recently, so things have been a little bit... Congratulations. um, Exactly, chaotic, but I'm hanging in there. Alhamdulillah, we're doing well. Good. Now, suicide rates have gone up, uh, unfortunately, and especially in young men. This is something that, um, you know, every time we talk about men's health, it's a, it's a, it's a figure and it's a stat that comes up all, all the time that the suicide rates in men is a lot higher than it is in women. Where does that unhappiness, you think, where does that come from? To such an extent that you are forced or you're you know, you think about taking your own life. I think, of course, like, you know, uh, every individual that commits suicide, um, they have their own particular reasons. But like what it comes down to, unhappiness essentially comes from a lack of self-worth, not knowing your worthiness, who you are, um, how important you are. And in my opinion, it also comes from a lack of understanding of your being like Hmm. how insane it is for you to actually exist if people knew the chances of you being born and alive and they understand and they put that into context they would never think about taking their own life so i think it comes down to a few factors one if you don't know what your worth is your lack of sense of self um you don't know what purpose you have in life and you don't know how important you are and ultimately 
if you don't feel like you belong, then you will think of ending your life. Hmm. So for men, it comes under a lot of different things. Men are under a lot of pressure, you know, um, for providing, for being good fathers, for being good husbands, for being good sons, for taking care of everything. And the biggest thing that society does is it makes us feel like we have to do it all on our own. Yeah. We have to have it all together. So that's why when you asked me how I'm doing, you assumed I would be doing well, and you said, Alhamdulillah, I hope everything is well. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that is true, yeah. That's the answer that everybody looks for, right? Everybody's <laughs> doing well. And we act and we hide behind this, oh, everything is okay, when men are suffering in silence. Hmm. And that's why a lot of times men have a higher suicide rate because women are societally more accustomed to being okay to show their emotions or you know so show that they're struggling hmm. but men are it's not okay for men to do that so when they don't feel like they have an outlet they don't feel like they're good enough they don't belong eventually based off of a few different factors hmm. they end up taking their own life because so, they don't realize um not only how important they are as a being but also the connection that they have with, with Allah Ta'ala, right they have lost that that connection knowing that hmm. he created them their rub he he cares for them deeply and he's always there for them. They've lost that. Hmm. So because they lose that connection as well, it's multifaceted, but that's what I would say. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to not having self-worth and not knowing your purpose and thinking you don't belong. Hmm. So you recently started a program within the, you know, as part of uh, the community to help Ahmadi men, members of the of, of the of the community, to speak up about their struggles, to speak up about what's what's on their mind and and the issues that that are plaguing them. How how has that response been? Yeah, so um, I made a shift in my coaching. I used to serve type two diabetics, and I had a I had it on my heart and a calling to really serve Amity men um, mm. because I think there's a lot of need there. And what I want to help Amity men with is to help own who they are, their identity, because I feel like Amity men hide who they are because of a lot of trauma, generational trauma, persecution, XYZ. And a lot of Amity men don't know what their purpose is. So if a man doesn't know who he is and he doesn't know what his purpose is, he's going to be a very lost man. Mm. So what I see, and the men, specifically entrepreneurs and executives, they do really well at work, but they don't do well at home. They don't have a good home life balance. Their relationships are struggling. So I want to help Amity men on all areas of their lives. That's what holistic health comes in, which is taking a look at your emotional health, your mental health, your spiritual health, and your relational health, along with your physical health. And it's been... Um, and when you, when a man can take care of all of those things, he owns who he is and he knows what his purpose is, he becomes a very powerful man. So I want Amity men to show up powerfully not only at their work, but also at home as well. Hmm. And the response so far has been what I expected. Um, Amity men are very scared to ask for help. Um, they're struggling a lot and it's because on some level we don't feel asking for help is okay right um it triggers the trauma response of somehow i will be taken advantage of hmm. and a lot of it is arrogance right they have to humble themselves a lot of amity men that i'm speaking to they don't think they need help and again they're struggling because of society you know men are, men are supposed to be able to do it on their own you have the lone wolf it you got hmm. it all together but deep down they're struggling 
Lekin alhamdulillah, there are a lot of men that are seeking out and, and reaching out for help and are getting the help and transforming their lives. But in a general scope of things, Ahmadi men don't reach out. They don't really ask for help because they think they have to do it on their own. And they think they're the only ones that are struggling. Uh, like somehow if I share what I'm struggling with, then I will look weak. Hmm. And if I look weak, then you can take advantage of me in some way, shape or form. Then you can hurt me. Hmm. Right? So that's been the response so far. The response so far has been quite challenging. Like in Alhamdulillah, you know, I'm I'm again with prayers, I'm I'm moving forward with it. It's been a little over six to eight months since I've made this shift. So inshallah it will take time with the way that I put out content and what resonates. Hmm. And inshallah, I can help more more men. Well, you mentioned uh, finding your purpose and, and and the importance of finding your purpose. Uh, in your experience, uh, the, the men that are coming to you, how many of them have actually lost that connection with the Creator and don't have that, that certainty that we talked about earlier? So I, I think that, um, again, it's, it's hard for me to say, right, based on the sample size that I have. Like in, generally speaking, if you're someone that's very anxious all the time, you're very stressed out all the time, you will, generally speaking, have lose your connection with your creator. Because mm-hmm. when we're anxious, when we're in our heads, we're disconnected from ourselves. We're disconnected from our soul. And if we're disconnected from our soul, we will be disconnected from Allah Ta'ala. Mm-hmm. Unless you are using that stress and anxiety and you are using that as your fuel to get onto the prayer mat and, you know, weep and cry and let everything out and let Allah Ta'ala take care of things, it will be very difficult for you to stay connected because you will think that you can figure it out. That you, it's on you, that you have to do it, hmm. right? Instead of Allah Ta'ala will help you, Allah Ta'ala will figure it out. You think that you have to earn this money this month. Where is that going to come from? You're going to do it. Not Allah Ta'ala is giving you that. All risk is coming from Allah Ta'ala, right? You think you can solve all of your problems. So when you're a very anxious and stressed person, it's very natural for you to get rid of, mm. not get rid of, diminish that, that connection. Um, and a lot of Ahmadi men are wounded. They have <coughs> been hurt in one shape or form or way, either by, within, by other Ahmadis or by other people. They have somehow gone away from the Jamaat and a lot of them, you know, use their work and their success as a thing to hide behind so that, you know, they can say, oh, look, I'm successful. I'm making a lot of money. I don't have to be connected. I don't need to be connected. But there's a lot of members that I'm noticing, alhamdulillah, especially the members that do a lot of Jamaat work, right, that are, you know, in the amlas of, 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 of any area. Alhamdulillah, they, Allah Ta'ala, have, Allah Ta'ala has blessed them with a lot of financial success and um, the spiritual success as well. You know, a lot of the, if you take a look at a lot of the amla members in almost every Jamaat, in every country, alhamdulillah, they do really well. And it's because they have, they have stayed connected with, you know, Allah Ta'ala with their spirituality, with doing Jamaat work and the blessings of Jamaat work, um, you know, there's, there's unlimited, unlimited way that they, that pays you back. I think it's the best investment you can make. So it's mixed. Hmm. Um, and I wanted to highlight that it's both. It's not just one or the other. It's mixed, but there is a lot of need for support for MD men. Yeah. Do you, if that makes sense. Do you find that uh, because you are a professional um people are uh, uh, people understand more you know the uh, the the importance of the of having the connection with god all the talk that that 
um, uh, that you just talked about. Uh, you know, it will be quite similar to to what, for example, if somebody, if I was to go to Imam Raza, for example, uh, you know, he would tell me the same thing, go and do namaz and go and, you know, um, cry in front of God. But do you think uh, uh, people, um, because you are a professional, uh, you know, you um, you almost act as an expert and, 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 and then people find those words more reassuring? Well, I don't say that to my clients. Because that's they're not there yet, right? You can't cry in front of Allah Taala unless you have unless you know how to connect with yourself. The only time you will actually cry in front of God is if you are in a impossible situation. Now, why do we turn to Allah Taala? We turn to Allah Taala usually for two reasons. One is when we're in a lot of pain and suffering, and we know there's no other way out, so we go to the prayer mat, or we turn to Him when we are insanely, ridiculously, deep down, heartfelt, grateful about something. Mm. Usually because an affliction has been removed. Or we just are blessed with something and we go to pray to Him to thank Him. Those are usually the only two times that we really deeply connect with Allah Ta'ala, right? But the only way for you to connect with Him is you have to first be able to connect with yourself. If you don't know how to connect with yourself, how will you cry? How will you weep? And you cannot connect with yourself if you're always anxious, if you're always stressed out, hmm. if you're always in your head. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is I first help you understand and connect with yourself, understand mm-hmm. who you are, self-awareness, the mm-hmm. self-worth, and understand that you are not alone. You have, most people are unaware that there's a God that exists, a living God that exists, because they haven't really searched for him. They're too busy doing, <laughs> worrying about things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> worrying about their day-to-day lives. Mm. Right. And, and do you think in, in that endeavor, techniques like mindfulness help? A- absolutely. Absolutely. Right. You, you have to first, you have to first, there's, there's many different modalities. Right, that I use, um, and I and I combine the work that I have learned and studied and practiced as a professional, and also a lot of Islamic things. Lekin namaz in it of itself, if this is the biggest point here, if you actually know how to salat, if you actually know how to read namaz, which I don't think majority Muslims and Amdis do, the very few that do will tell you, this is why they find so much peace and comfort mm. and joy in it. Because if you do actually pray namaz the way it's supposed to be prayed, that in and of itself is all the meditation, mindfulness, everything that you need. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a hadith of the Holy Prophet that if you pray five times a day, it's like taking a bath in a, in a spring five times a day, spiritually, mm-hmm. for your soul. Yeah. You know, it's like you have to know that the meeting that you're about to have is the meeting with the Lord. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you have a Zoom meeting. Right now we have a meeting here on the Voice of Islam. UK, it's like that. It's a meeting. You have five meetings in the day. Hmm. Five meetings to talk to your friend. But you have to be aware that you're talking to your friend. Yeah. You have to be fully present. But if in Namaz you're not present, you're thinking about XYZ, you know, what am I going to eat for dinner or I have to do this for work yeah. next or my, my wife needs this or, you know, you're not there. That's exactly how so, you know the Prophet said that you you need to imagine yourself in a certain state. I mean, you imagine yourself you seeing God. If that's not possible, then imagine that God is seeing you. And if we think about so let's back up. Yeah. Let's back up right there. You said what the Holy Prophet said first is the standard. 
Yeah. We overlook the standard. The yeah. standard is that you should be able to see God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? So that means that he's there. If mm. you can't see him, you know he's there. So he's 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 actually like living, he's there. Then you actually have a conversation and you say everything that you need to say to him. A lot of it what I've noticed is there's a lot of um shame and guilt that men carry which on some deep level makes them feel like who they are is not okay. Mm. They're bad. But they're not worthy of that relationship or they're not worthy of receiving help. And that is a lot of, you know, childhood stuff that, you know, men go through conditioning that they go through based on how they've been up, they've been brought up and again every household is different, yeah. right? Um a lot of men are not accustomed, not even just men, actually women too. Like, you know, showing emotions is not okay. Right. Um, so when you're not allowed to show emotions, you become numb. So then it's hard for you to show your emotions in the mas either. Yeah. Right. How, how will you really cry? How will you weep? How will you melt away if you haven't cried and if you know that it's not okay to cry? Yeah. Or if you've been taught it's not okay to cry. Right. Um, yeah, there's just a lot here. <laughs> so yeah. much here. <laughs> what would be your uh, your take on the on the phrase "be a man"? <laughs> um, well, again, that is societal, right? It's it's based off of societal norms, mm. and it's just underneath that, the person that says "be a man" is suffering from a lot of insecurity and fear. Or because lack of empathy. that is your that yeah that is your ego talking mm. right so who is to say what a man really is who is to say what it is to be a man let's let's talk about that right how would you say that okay this is the definition of a man this is what it means to be um a real man so if you look at the the example of the Holy Prophet Sallam, right? We know he is the best example for us. Hmm. If you look at his life, if you if you study his his life and his ways of being, how he was, he is the example of what a man is. Hmm. And the Holy Prophet Sallam used to he showed every emotion there was to show. Yeah. Hmm. At the right, right? time. He went he, it, exactly. He went through every hardship there was that you could imagine. He was an orphan, <clears throat> right? Hmm. He was an orphan. He lost every bird, everybody that you can lose. He lost from parents to relatives to children to companions to um, loved ones. Everybody, he, anybody that uh, the amount of grief that that man went through, I don't think anybody has gone through. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Right. So you have to look at the example of what is a man. Sometimes people say, you know, it's like you know, people will say that phrase when it's when it's benefiting when it when it's beneficial for them. Yeah. Right. But that puts a lot of pressure on a on a, on, a, on a person. Yeah. Right. On, on a man. <laughs> on, on a man. <laughs> All right, Ghulam, Thank you so much for for joining us today. Um, and uh, we will be in touch. We will be um, coming back to you to find out a little bit more about how that. Uh, approach is going and, and, and what kind of progress is being made inshallah further down the line but for now thank you very much Jazakallah for, for joining us today and assalamu alaikum to you wa alaikum assalam
and I'm as a holistic health and life coach for Amity entrepreneurs and executives. Now, moving right away to our next guest for today. He is an imam of the Amity Muslim community who graduated in 2020. He got to serve in several departments here in the UK until uh, last year's summer. And then right now he's currently serving as the imam, as a, as a missionary of the Amity Muslim community in uh, Brussels in Belgium. Asif bin Awais is with us on the line. Asif, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the draft. I'm sure. Welcome, Rahmatullah. Thank you very much. Jazakallah for joining us today. Now, Imam Asif, what does belief in the unseen entail? We started off with uh, that being the first pillar of Islam. Why would that belief be a sense of comfort for a believer? Isn't that usually the other way around, that when we don't see someone or something, it, it causes anxiety, it causes discomfort? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But here it should be the other way around. How? So, you know, it's straightforward. In short, uh, the word unseen explains it as well. So, in short, believe in the unseen means believe in the existence of matters that cannot be observed by the human sense of sight, right? Mm. But when we as Muslims talk about the unseen, we are specifically referring to the concept of the unseen mentioned in the Holy Quran. So in uh, Surah Al-Baqarah verse 4, God mentions that pious people believe in the unseen. يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ Now, uh, if we were to find out the meaning of this verse, or, or, or the meaning of غَيْب, of the unseen, uh, in Mufradah, the very famous well-known dictionary of the, Holy Quran, of the Holy Quran by Imam Raghib, it has been explained that the word غَيْب, the word unseen here, means all that which cannot be observed through the five human senses. Now, this definition has also been quoted by Hazrat Muslim but he further elaborated that even though the unseen cannot be observed through the five human senses, it can in fact be observed through other means, such as intellect and personal experience. Now, uh, from a religious point of view, many things uh, come under the unseen. Uh, this entails belief uh, in God, the exist- existence of angels, life after death, etc., etc., now, why would believe in the unseen bring a sense of comfort to the believers? As believers, all hope is never lost for us in, in any situation because we believe in an all-powerful God, you know, because uh, believing, believe in the unseen entails belief in God as well. So we believe in an all-powerful God who hears our prayers and fulfills our needs. He says in the Holy Quran, pray to, me, so, uh, pray to me and I will answer you. So even when all hope feels lost, this is truly not the case for us. We get comfort from, from the fact that there is still a superior power to turn to who has promised us that he will answer our prayers. Uh, we have the comfort of knowing that there is a superior being who is looking after us. So that's really the point, that's really the aspect that brings about a comfort in the believers, in, in, in believing uh, in the unseen. Would you say there is a correlation between uh mental health issues or the rise of mental health issues as we're seeing today and a rise in agnosticism? Yeah, uh, this is in fact the case. It's not just my opinion, but even countless research shows that this is the case. You know, um, a, lot of, a lot of research indicates that religious people as a group tend to have better mental health uh, than the non-religious people as a group or the people that don't believe in a superior being or the people that don't believe that the superior being can have an impact on our life and this is apparent through several indicators such as uh, lower rates of depression 
uh, anxiety, suicide, self-harm, and also substance abuse among the religious. Now, there is countless amount of research that has been done to back this up. Uh, in the Handbook of Religion and Health, the book that compares the relation between uh, religion and mental health, it's been written by uh, Harold G. Cunning and uh, with the help of some other colleagues. So they have highlighted that before the year of 2000, more than 100 studies examined the relationship between religion and depression. And out of 93 observational studies, two-thirds found lower rates of depressive disorder with fewer depressive symptoms in persons who were more religious. We see the same result regarding suicide. Uh, in the same book, a systematic review of research also before the year 2000 has been done regarding the relation uh, of religion and suicide. 68 studies were identified among those 57 found fewer suicides or more negative attitude towards suicide amongst uh, the more religious people. Now, this is just one review I've mentioned for the sake of the conversation, but if one wants to dig deeper, if interested, they will find countless other research that concludes the same. But now the question arises, what is the reason for this? Why is it that religious people suffer less from depress, uh, depression compared to non-religious people? Now. As a Muslim, if I were to answer this, if I were to answer how my faith prevents me from becoming depressed or how it helps me with anxiety, it is that it gives meaning to my life. You know, this has been discussed before as well in this program. It gives my, it gives my life purpose. I know what I'm here for and what I'm supposed to do. Also, I'm a firm believer in God. I believe he's all powerful. I know he listens to and answers my prayers. In the Holy Quran, God states, as I said in answer to the first question, he will listen to us and he will answer our prayers. And this is not all theoretical. I can also firmly say that through personal experience, yeah. God has answered my prayers and taken me out of difficult and seemingly impossible situations. And as a firm believer in God, all hope is never lost for me. So that, I that's, never feel lost in this regard. Imam Asif, that, that would be the way to attain that certainty of God. I mean, it's all good and fine when you say you know, it's not just theoretical talk and that's i think the, the the you know this this thing that holds back people from actively pursuing religion or believing in god that yes it's all good and fine it's in a book which was revealed or written or co yeah. collected or compiled many many centuries ago well, how how does that relate to me i don't see god today what i do see is suffering what i do see is you know people yeah. Um, going against each other but how do I see and experience that certainty then so it's really about you know putting the effort with the right mindset as I said that theory and logic tells us that there should be a God right there should be a higher being but theory alone doesn't conclude that there is in fact a God the, that certainty is only achieved through your own experience mm -hmm. and and this is a point that has been highlighted by Hazrat Mirza Bashir in his book Our God you need to see the signs of God in your own life. You need to see your prayers being answered. You need to feel God's presence in all factors of life, no matter how big or small. And this is how you can conclude as a fact, and, and uh, on a personal level, that there is in fact a God. You know, even the Prophet Islam said that for spiritual purification, understanding alone is not enough. One has to put in the effort. One uh, heart-rending weeping and crying like little infants is also necessary said the, the uh, Prophet mm. and God has given you know the perfect the perfect instruction regarding this we don't need to uh, assess any external sources God himself says in the Holy Quran that when my servants ask thee about me say I am near 
I answer the prayer of the supplicant when he prays to me. So it's really about putting in the effort to try to find God by praying to him hmm. so that he may answer you and show you his presence. And when you're shown God's presence, that's when you can be truly sure uh, of, of, uh, of his being, right? His, his, uh, of God's being. Imam yeah. Asif, in, in your line of work, in, in your yeah. day-to-day dealing, I'm sure you deal with different... Um, with, with people of different age groups, is that something that the youth is interested in? And if so, how do you explain that to them? You know, it, it comes down to the same thing. The older generation, you know, they've they've, they've been brought up in a different atmosphere. Yeah. They were migrants, you know. They, they've got the basics uh, because they were brought up in a different different type of household compared to the households in today's age in, in the Western countries, yeah. you know. The, the, they, need, they need a little bit more effort in understanding religion, understanding the concept of God, why we need God, and, and, and how to attain God. Hmm. So it's definitely a bit harder in comparison. It's more to challenging the for them, isn't it? Indeed, it yeah. is. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, uh, in Urdu, we say, Madi Dunya, you know, it's very worldly. The whole the, the, the civilization, uh, the, uh, everything is very worldly driven. Material. So. Oh. Yeah, materialistic, right? Mm. So pushing spirituality into this materialistic uh, world is uh, is really difficult, mm. and especially with the with the new generation. Okay. But but <clears throat> it comes down to the same thing, just you know, putting in the effort and and, and trying. Yeah. Wonderful, Imam Asabin Wais. Thank you very much for for joining us today. Very interesting to to, to talk to you. And uh, great to have you on here on today's show. Uh, Imam Thank Asif, in a way, is joining us from Brussels in, in Belgium, where he's currently serving as an Imam of the MDM Muslim community. Jazakallah for your time. Assalamu alaikum. Jazakallah. We're asking you the question, how do you know God exists? There's a few replies that we have received. Uh, one uh, reads that he answers all my prayers and created the universe. Then another one says, through accept, uh, acceptance of prayers. Then another one said, belief and by his miracles, he never leaves us alone. Interesting. Okay, now we are going to move on. Uh, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, on whom be peace, said that there is nothing like certainty. It is certainty which delivers one from sin. It is certainty which gives you the strength to do good deeds. It is certainty which imbues you with the true love of God. Can you cease from sin without certainty? Can you cease pursuing your selfish desires without witnessing a truly certain manifestation of God? Can you discover peace without certainty? Can you bring about a sincere change without certainty? Can you achieve true prosperity without certainty? He also goes on to say that, Remember, without certainty you cannot emerge from a life of darkness, nor can you find the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who possess certainty, for it is they who will come to see God. Blessed are those who rid themselves of doubt and uncertainty, for it is they who shall be delivered of sin. Blessed shall you be when the treasure of certainty is bestowed upon you, for only then will your sin be effaced. 
Our next guest for today is with us on the line. <coughs> we are going to talk to Nurul Qaynat. Uh, She's a student at the Catholic University of Leuven, I hope I pronounced that correctly, in Belgium. She's doing her master's in clinical psychology, specializing in children and teens. Assalamu alaikum, good afternoon, and peace be upon you. Welcome to the draft of Show, Nurul Qaynat. Wa alaikum assalam, thank you for having me. Nizakullah for joining us today. Now, as someone who studies or who's studying psychology, have you come across, have you seen any studies in regards to the rise of unhappiness in this current time? Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, even before COVID hit, the worldwide prevalence of um, mental disorders was actually already on the rise. Um, a meta-analysis, which is um, actually a study that combines the result of multiple studies showed that um, among children and teens, the prevalence of mental disorders was approximately 13.4%. And um, then COVID hit. And this was, you know, one of the biggest global mm. crises in generations. And um, it caused major changes in not only um, health systems, but economies and um, societies and all of this um, impacted people's already worsening um, mental state. Um, according to uh, the World Health Organization, uh, the global prevalence of um, anxiety and depression increased by 25% in the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is, you know, a lot. Um, a lot of people reported psychological distress and symptoms of um, depression, um, anxiety, and um, post-traumatic stress even. And if we uh, uh, specifically look at studies about the effect of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic on the mental state of children and teens, a lot of kids um, reported uh, COVID-related anxiety. And um, furthermore, there were um, more anxiety and depression symptoms supported than um, pre-COVID. So, um, you know, this rise in um, psychological distress has in turn resulted in an increased demand for uh, mental health services. But as a um, consequence, this resulted in, you know, in longer waiting lists. Um, and if I look at the situation in Belgium, it's actually really concerning how long um, some people have to wait nowadays before they get the help they, you know, they actually need. Hmm. So, um, yes, overall, there has been, um, there has indeed been a rise in unhappiness as a result of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic. So then after having looked at these numbers, yeah. Can I ask you that from from a holistic perspective, if you combine religion, if you combine science, if you show people that this belief in God is not something which is against, um, you know, common sense, which is against yeah. what they stand for, all of this, if you make this belief in God accessible and acceptable to people, <laughs> which is not in contrast to what they what they stand for, what they believe and what they've learned. Would that help in soothing these worries? Yes, um, it absolutely can. Um, a study from 2020 actually shows that um, positive beliefs such as um, greater faith 
and um, trust in God and secure religious attachment and um, religious gratitude are actually associated with lower levels of um, anxiety. And uh, because individuals experience a uh, personal relationship with God, uh, from whom they are able to seek, um, you know, aid and um, comfort from, they may find uh, the, the, the demands of daily living as well as uh, personal problems easier to manage. Um, they may um, anticipate and believe they are, um, you know, they are navigating their existence with the help of a, um, yeah, a, a valued advisor. So um, such beliefs may foster um, hopefulness and also optimism and um, other healthy beliefs and emotions. Right. So we in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we believe uh, that there is no contradiction between religion and science, i.e. Yeah. the word of God and the work of God. Um, do you think that that uh, sort of concept helps soothe worries, helps um uh, understand uh, uh, Islam uh, helps understand uh, um, the um, it helps you get a deeper understanding of yourself. Yeah, so um, studies have often um, credited religion with making uh, people healthier and happier and um, more engaged in their communities. And there have been, um, you know, numerous psychological studies that indicate that religious people benefit from uh, greater physical and mental health, and um, they report a higher life satisfaction. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, in the United States, which is, you know, one of the most um, religious countries in the West, and there this effect is um, especially strong and persistent. So, yes, I would say that uh, religion can have a positive effect hmm. on, you know, our subjective uh, well-being. So we're, we're happier, huh? Yes. Yeah, good. Um, now, as, as a psychology student, uh, I want to ask you, of course, do you have any tips on how to get out of, out of uh, you know, overthinking state, how to create more hormones, how to... Uh, there, there's a saying I, I think in, in the Punjabi language as well that if you yeah. once you start thinking you're lost <laughs> right I mean yeah. <laughs> I, don't wanna, I, don't, I know the one you're talking you know about the one yeah, that, that I'm talking yeah. about right so I mean it, it's very befitting if you <laughs> for example I know uh, for a friend of mine uh, his 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 uh, check engine light came on last night you're right guy couldn't sleep <laughs> He couldn't sleep the night because he's like, what's, what is the problem? What is this? What is that? So, I mean, this is just a small issue. Yeah. So just think about, yeah. I mean, you lose your job. How are you going to provide for the family? So yeah. this overthinking, say, the one thing leading to another and, and going on and yeah. on and on and on and, a, and ending up in a place where you just paralyze. You don't yeah. know what to do yeah. and how to proceed. How, how do we create more of those happy hormones? Yeah. So um, overthinking or rumination, as we like to call it in uh, psychology, is, you know, is the process of having constant and repetitive thoughts about something, typically, um, like you said, a problem or a situation. Um, now, it's important to point out that having temporary rumin ruminating thoughts during 
um, stressful situations is, you know, it's completely normal. But it becomes uh, problematic when these thoughts are frequent and ongoing and they interfere with your uh, day-to-day life. Hmm. So um, in order to overcome this state of rumination and overthinking, there are uh, several things that can be done. Um, first of all, and I think most um, uh, the most important thing that you can do is uh, talk to Allah about it throughout the offering of uh, Salat. Mm. Talk to Him about your worries, your <coughs> problems, and you will see that this will help you, you know, uh, clear your conscience. Um, you can also talk uh, about it professionally with a therapist or a psychologist or with your friends and family. Um, you know, talking about your thoughts with someone who can offer um, an outside perse- perspective may um, help break this cycle that you have. Hmm. Um, you can also try to distract yourself, which can also break your thought cycle. Um, you can watch a movie, for example, or read a book, or go for a walk. Hmm. And um, another another thing that you can do is practice meditation or mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, this can uh, reduce uh, rumination because it involves clearing um, your mind to arrive at an uh, you know, an, an emotionally calm state. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, these are uh, a few some ways of, you can some of things. Over. Wonderful. Now, I want to ask you one more, one last question. Um, it's maybe a little bit on a personal side, but as as a Muslim yourself, can you can you recall a moment where your belief in in God, where your belief in Allah, has you know, given you contentment, has mm-hmm. given you that solution that you were looking for? Yeah, um, yeah. I would say that um, you know, throughout my studies, um, the belief in God has given me a lot of contentment. Um, there have been um, some instances throughout the years where. Um, after taking uh, taking an exam, I was um, 100% sure that um, I would never pass it. Hmm. Um, but um, after worrying about it for a bit, I would just, you know, I would just leave it on Allah because I knew that there was no point in um, in stressing about it anymore. And if for some, um, you know, miraculous reason I would pass, it would have been only Allah's doing. Hmm. And that is exactly what happened. Um, even though I was convinced I wouldn't pass, I still did. So yes, this is one you know, one of many. I'm sure. God, <clears throat> yeah. Wonderful. Jazakra, thank you very much for for joining us today. She's a student at the Catholic University of what was it, Leuven, Leuven. Leuven, yes. Leuven, Leuven. <laughs> During her master's in clinical psychology, specializing in children and teens. Uh, good luck um, and all the best for your future studies. Let's just hope Thank and you pray very. that you pass with flying college. Jazakallah for that, sister. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. How do you prove or how do you know that God does exist? We have, uh, I received one more reply from uh, someone about this topic and about contentment and 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 you know the topic that we're talking about right now when one trusts in Allah the almighty that removes uncertainty from your heart this is akin to the spiritual state of a man 
of man, i.e. nafsi mutmainna, the soul at peace, as discussed by the Prophet Messiah, peace be upon him, in his book, The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam. I have experienced that when you put your trust wholeheartedly in Allah, you feel content with whatever you have. This trust in Allah removes self-doubt and uncertainty. And uh, on the topic of uh, yeah, on the topic of uh, certainty, uh, you know, the an example that I can immediately think of is that of the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and his companion Hazrat Abu Bakr. This was actually mentioned by um, His Holiness in his Friday sermon today as well. Hmm. So during the their yeah. migration to to Medina, um, they were hiding in a cave, and their enemies stood right outside that cave, where both the Prophet and his companion uh, could actually see their feet. It's a very small cave, and they could see the feet and uh, you know they were right outside the cave and the enemy just had to go down and they would have spotted them and um, Hazrat Abu Bakr who was the companion was worried uh, for the life of the Holy Prophet and he said I, I looked at the feet of uh, those mushrikeen um, uh, or those um, uh, those idolaters and whilst we were in that cave and they were literally on top of us and I said O Messenger of Allah if any of them just looks down they will see us and you know what the, the Prophet said? The Prophet said, what do you think, Abu Bakr, of two people whose third is Allah? Hmm. So in essence, he's saying, just trust Allah. And that's that's the verse in the Holy Quran that did fear not or grieve not for God is with us. Yeah. And I think that's when, when, when we're talking to Ghulam as well, speaking about the definition of a man. Apart from the emotional side of things, it's also the connection that he had with God Almighty that showed us that you can you can beat all the odds. That ultimate connection. Look, absolutely. you have three hundred untrained rookie mm. people <laughs> who have nothing to do with fighting. Yeah, and they don't have any arms as well. Nothing. Yeah, it, nothing. It, two no, horses or three horses. Probably. Not not even that in the first one. I think yeah. there was like one or two horses. Yeah, yeah, something like that. No camels whatsoever. I mean swords. I don't even know how. You are up against a professional army mm. of th- of a thousand. So the the odds are one to three. Mm. If you look at some of the games today in the World Cup, is like you have the odds like thirty three percent to seventy seven yeah. or whatever sixty six. I don't know, but that's based on two mm. almost equal teams, mm. but who have the same kind of uh, um, gear and 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 training and whatnot. But still, you have one to three odds. Life or death? Hmm. Was he worried? He wasn't. Yeah, not at because all. he had that certainty the on his side. And I think the most beautiful example that I have, um, and I was listening to one of the Beacon of uh, Truth episodes produced by Canada, uh, MT uh, Muslim Television, MD International in Canada. <clears throat> they say, you know, that example where the Prophet uh, he was offered. Uh, women and this and that and they said you know you should stop preaching and he said you can do whatever you want if you put the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left mm. I will still not do it. Mm. and they said that you know we as, as as a human race we have progressed and we have developed and we've come to this stage based on certain factors right um, I might have mentioned this before here um, and so you have different philosophers and different thinkers that say based on our um, pursuit of of power. That's why we have we have come this far. Then others, you have for it, for example, it's it's based on our uh, sexual drive that we've come this far. And then others have said it's a pursuit of money or you know yeah. s- certain things. Wasn't 
that presented to the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah. Yeah, exactly. He was he was offered money, mm. he was offered women, mm. he was offered power. Yeah. All of these three things were put in front of him and said, you know what, you can have it all. We'll give it to you. Yeah. But you got to do one thing: just stop just, preaching. Just, exactly. Mm. Stop insulting our gods. Mm. Now. Someone who does not have certainty, someone who does not have 100% conviction that I'm mm. sent by the one, he would just... Such a beautiful example. Yeah, like, Absolutely. You know, I'll take yeah. it. I'll take it all. Yeah. That, that's, what, that's what I want. I mean, <laughs> why do I have to fight and get myself killed, mm. put myself in trouble, persecution, opposition all my life mm. when I can have this? Yeah. But he said no. You can put the sun in my right and the moon in my left. I will still not stop. And that is because of conviction. That is because of certainty. Nothing else. So with that, we're going to come to a conclusion. And the only thing that is certain in life is that we are all going to leave this planet one day. We will meet our creator and we will be held accountable by him. So to make him, make God your friend by experiencing certainty in his being, ask him, reach out to him. There's nothing stopping you. You don't need a middleman. You don't need to go through someone. Mm -hmm. Every day, every moment, every second of our life is an opportunity for us to, to meet him. But for us as Muslims, five days, five times have been prescribed by God Almighty himself. And these are the, the times that you should come see me. I want to meet you and tell me about your day. Tell me about what's your, uh, what's bugging you. Tell me about your problems and your issues and I will answer your prayer. That is a promise that we have been given as Muslims by God Almighty Himself in the Holy Quran. And it is the example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and then of course his caliphs. And then for us, the promised Messiah on whom be peace that have shown us that God is not something that should exist. God is something that certainly, certainly does exist. From all of us here, take care of yourself. Have a lovely evening and a wonderful day. And we'll be back uh, with uh, the Drive Time Show on Monday, inshallah. From all of us here, assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you.